Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. My name is Jamila Risby and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. Today our theme is sustainability and we will go into that in just a moment, including some criticisms from Astrid of our theme today. I am joined by my co-host Astrid Edward, my partner in crime, and our guest host today is Bianca Cos. Welcome Bianca, welcome Astrid. It is lovely to be here as always. Astrid, Jamila, great to be with you. Our theme today, as I've already mentioned, is sustainability, and we have two excellent reads coming at us today. Two reads which, Astrid, I believe you are going to make the criticism, aren't really about sustainability at all. Yes, I despise that word. So there we go. I'm putting my cards on the table at the beginning of this episode. I adore both books that we are talking about. I think they are a fantastic example of fiction and nonfiction that deal with the state of the world and the state of our environment. So I love the books. The word sustainability, at least for me, conjures good purchasing choices and recycling or reusing what I purchase and maybe rethinking if I really need to buy something and, you know, turning the taps off and make sure they don't drip and maybe getting some green energy in my home. And all of those things are good things. And yes, we all need to do them, but they all put the responsibility on the individual and that's great. We do need to take responsibility and I encourage everybody to, you know, recycle and reuse. But the scale of the problem is so far beyond that. We will not hit any kind of target that means that we don't warm our planet by 1.5 degrees or less unless we make systemic and industrial change. And that is not at the level of the consumer. That is not at the level of the individual. That was really depressing. I'm so sorry. That's okay. That's your job on this podcast. We appreciate it. We pay thanks for your service for being the one to bring the negatives of, of the ramifications of dangerous climate change. Biana, do you think books have a role to play in making the emergency of the climate crisis better understood? But as Astrid's just said, putting pressure on governments and big corporations to change their behaviour. Is that something books can do? Absolutely, Jamila. I think books have a really important role to play in reconsidering, I guess, some of the assumptions we make about the world around us. All media does, really. But I think the benefit of books, fiction and non-fiction, and in particular the two that we're discussing today, is that it can do some of the work in... I guess some of the surface level assumptions we make, maybe some misinformation that's circulating and to Astrid's point can really tell that story of what we take for granted, you know, what the effect of individual actions is and how really big and grave and scary and slightly depressing this situation is. So I think that's the role of books in this. And I think given that you spend more time with them and even that you spend time with them in, a, I think, a more intimate way a lot of the time than other media. It puts books and stories in a position to actually challenge what you already believe and what you think. And because of that, it can make these messages a lot more meaningful. And actually, these stories can really affect change on an individual and I think on a community and even a systemic level. I have to say, and this is a bit of a, an admission, I don't read a lot in the climate space. I don't read a lot of climate fiction. 
it's not my chosen genre. Sorry, Astrid. And I don't read a lot of climate nonfiction because it scares me and I get really distressed and I find I can't sleep afterwards. It's kind of like the same way I avoid some dystopian television. I've just checked out of the real dystopian (laughs) discussions in our world, which tend to come from climate nonfiction. So I do tend to avoid it. I have to force myself into reading in this space, even things like the IPCC's recent report. You know, I read a few articles, but it was painful for me. It took a really deliberate choice to read that. And I suspect a lot of people are like that, right? That we, we sort of avert our eyes from the horror, not because we don't believe it, but because it feels impossible and because it feels unsolvable. Not unsolvable because it is actually unsolvable because we know that if we took the right action today, we could limit the warming of this planet, but it feels unsolvable because the idea that governments will come together for the collective action, the radical collective action that is needed to stop the warming of the planet, that feels impossible and unlikely. And I find I go to a really dark place if I I start reading that content. So this week's books were a bit of a struggle for me. They're a bit of a challenge for me. Nonetheless, I think I've learned loads. And when it came to our fiction, ended up quite emotional. So we're beginning with our fiction today and I am bringing to the table Ash Davidson's Damnation Spring. So this is a relatively new release. So I might start by giving everyone a bit of a summary. Damnation Spring is set in a small logging town in California in the 70s. It is about the Gunderson family. There is Rich, who is like a fourth or fifth generation logger. Like, you know, his family have been loggers forever and a bit. It's about his wife, Colleen, and they've got a son called Chubb, which is not a great name, I reckon. Anyway, they have a pretty tough life. Logging is a dying industry, even in the 70s. There are environmental activists who are often called tree huggers and hippies in this book, who believe it is not only dangerous to the individuals involved in it, but it's a dangerous profession because you're easily hurt or killed, but it is dangerous to the planet, particularly because logging in this part of the world is destroying redwood trees. But much of this book is from the perspective of loggers. It's from the perspective of Rich and his family for whom trees exist to be cut down, right? Because trees bring them a livelihood. And if it's between saving the world and saving yourself, these are the people on the front line of progress on environmental conservation, because for them, their livelihood would disappear without it. So, Seeing what's going to happen, Rich takes this kind of, uh, you know, last shot action, right? So this parcel of land near his house comes up for sale. He takes out a big loan to buy it and he does not tell his wife. can guess how impressed I was with that. Anyway, the plan is to log it and then retire on the money. He's got this great plan set out. And of course, being a book of fiction, the plan does not go well. Parallel to this storyline is the fact that both the government and the logging company that Rich worked for are using a herbicide spray to stop weeds and stuff and make the logging easier. I'm not a logging expert. (laughs) Anyway, the town is suffering from a bunch of birth defects, miscarriages. There are animals that die in mysterious ways. And these two things are linked, the herbicide spray and all of these horrible things that are happening. And the town is drinking polluted water and Colleen is someone who knows that she's drinking polluted water. She knows health is being compromised, but she doesn't know how to convince the people around her, including her husband, that this is true. 
Biana, what was your take on this book? How did it make you feel? How did you experience the characters? It's a book told in three parts from three perspectives. Who did you relate to? Oh, I related to, I think with all great fiction, I related with more than one character, depending on, you know, what situation we were looking at. I certainly expected that I would have really a sort of serious and a serious emotional response to this book because of the theme and because of what the community is going through and the way it kind of relates to my childhood. I grew up in far north Queensland where, the, you know, tourism is a pretty big economy and rather beautiful to grow up in the natural wonder of Cairns and the Great Barrier Reef. And so I thought I would really relate to that part of the story. And I did, but I was completely shocked with my own emotional response to the interaction of these human relationships, particularly in the Gunderson family, the marriage between Rich and Colleen, how they raise their son Chubb, and then their sort of extended family as well. The idea that you make this partnership and you build this life together based on a set of perspectives and values that you have when you make that commitment. And then what happens to that relationship when those values change? And, you know, Ash Davidson has this beautiful note on her website. She started this book. She started writing this book in 2010. So I don't think it was her intention to write such an incredible parallel to what we're experiencing right now. Obviously, the book's not about a public health crisis, but she's ended up writing a book that really kind of encapsulates what I think a lot of people are experiencing right now how your relationships and your ability to relate to people shifts as your perspective and your worldview shifts. It, it helps you relate to some people more. It helps you relate to some people less and the strength of our relationships. I think something that we really take for granted is tested in these circumstances. You would assume that you live your life by similar principles to your family and your partner and your best friends. But when something really huge happens you're often faced with the reality that that's not necessarily the case and then you have a few options you know you can try and see eye to eye you can reassess the relationship you can sort of sit there and hope that it doesn't affect you too seriously but I had a very very strong emotional response to this I think Ash Davidson writes human relationships and all of its complexities so beautifully and I definitely related to I think primarily Colleen but the struggle that search for that golden ticket that Rich is driven by and makes some really questionable decisions guided by I definitely related to as well That was a really beautiful way of explaining it, the complexities in the human relationships. I had a really visceral response as well emotionally to the characters and to the story. The complexities of what happens to the individuals because their environment is changing. Like there's no baddie. I mean, I guess you could say maybe the government is the baddie or the people deciding to spray pesticides are the baddie. But in general, there's no real baddie. So if you think about it, the loggers want to log because that is the income for their family and for their town. And they love the area. They otherwise look after the area. You can see them picking up litter and making sure they leave the logging site without the touch of humans, apart from the fact that they just cut it down, right? Like, so they love the area. But then when you log too much, they live at risk almost every day of landslides because there are no tree roots keeping the rock and the it's a hilly area like you know people are at risk of dying 
or having their house covered in a landslide because the earth is not safe anymore. Like that's their own choice and they are choosing to engage in this thing that is beyond any one individual to really control, even if you do come from four or five generations of a logging family, like eventually the earth won't be there for you. Literally, like the physical dirt outside your home won't be there for you. It will flow away. I guess I also felt like the title, Damnation Spring, like that's the title, that's the name of one of the locations in the book, but also it echoes Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which came out in the 60s, was, you know, probably the first famous environmental book about pesticides. And so by setting this in the 70s, and that would be more than a decade after the characters in the book would have been living in a world that had Silent Spring in it. And, you know, everybody knew pesticides were killing people and hurting animals, and yet the world continued. I wanted to talk a little bit about the genesis of this book, because I did a little bit of hunting, because I was interested in Ash Davidson's perspective and where it came from. So Davidson's family lived in Northern California, where the book is set. Her parents weren't loggers, but they did rely on the drinking water from a creek near the town. And they became so worried about herbicide contamination that her family stopped drinking water from the tap. And I found an interview where Davidson says that still today, her family won't drink tap water. They're so affected by what happened to them. And when she decided to write this book, she returned to Klamath, where her family are from, because she wanted to get the details right. She wanted to be sort of true to the experience of people in that town. And she talks about how hard it was to get people to speak to her. And she talks about approaching all of these people who she was either close to as a child or less connected to, but were part of her town, who were open, giving, generous people who just wouldn't wouldn't speak to it. Like they became really closed down and there was almost a shame and a a silence that was bred from that shame around the experience of that town and a protection, I think, of, of those who contributed to the situation. So eventually she said she went to this community dinner thing and she meets one particular logger who she didn't know previously. They become quite friendly and she eventually did get to ask him about herbicides. And this is an older guy And he apparently broke down telling her about being sprayed all over with herbicides while he was working and how that had influenced him and his health and his family and his ability to work since then. And she talked about, in that interview, she talked about empathy and how meeting this guy completely disrupted her preconceived notions about goodies and baddies, as you've put it, Astrid. And it made her determined to write a book in which the loggers were not cast as the bad guys, where good and bad were in the shades of grey that of course they are in life. Even with something as fundamental as climate change and sustainability and deforestation, even where we feel like there are really clear black and white lines scientifically, that even when that is the case, when you look at the human side of an equation, of course there is of course there are shades of grey. Biana, I want to ask you about how gender plays out in this story because we do hear this story from three perspectives, two of them adult, and we hear from a man and a woman who are in a relationship whose lives cross over in enormous number of ways, but whose feelings don't always cross over in the same ways. Can you speak to me a little bit about what's going on with gender in this book? I found gender 
I wasn't really thinking about it as I was reading necessarily. It wasn't in my forefront, but as the story unfolded, it sort of popped in and I found it really interesting. This is a logging community. This is very much a community with sort of small town vibes in the 70s. And the only industry we really know of is this tree felling. And it is incredibly masculine they talk about you know the physical risk that these men undertake on a day-to-day basis just to provide for their families and there's a lot of we've touched on this a little bit but there's quite a, a lot of legacy involved in in this industry it's a practice that's passed down from father to son and there's a lot of pride and I guess the representation of masculinity in this book is very these men are just sort of classic machismo they're tough they're rugged they're stoic and so on the surface this community seems to be one that's driven primarily by men and then we get into the crux of the story and the ways in which the narrative moves and that is solely because of the women in the community because the reality of their lives affects them first and they sort of cotton onto what's happening very quickly and it does bring up this tension in between the men and the women of the town interestingly it's not until the women of the town form call it an uneasy partnership with members of the indigenous community in the region the Yurok that any real change actually starts to take place and that any minds get changed. And I found that so interesting that in the beginning, when these outcomes and this effect comes to light, there's some, not discrediting, but it's dismissed. You know, the link isn't necessarily seen straight away. And then we have these two groups who really are marginalized, get together, partner up, It crumbles pretty much under the first application of pressure, but it does actually bring about a bit of a movement and some change. We described earlier that there's environmental activists in the story and they're described as tree huggers and hippies and they're just an annoyance blocking the roads. It's not until individuals from the community actually join up with these tree huggers and hippies. I hate those words, but that's how they're referred to, that anything really changes at all. This has been such a interesting discussion of a book I enjoyed so much as well. I thought I might end by just noting the epigraphs. I don't know if either of you sat down with them for very long at all, but one of them in particular stuck with me. So there are two epigraphs for Demnation Spring. One is a quote from John Steinbeck, which is, they are not like any trees we know. And the other is from Wallace Stegner. And it is, it is easier to die than move. And that is the one that I kept coming back to the whole way through this book. I think sometimes we assume that working in an industry like logging is a choice and it's a choice that's easily substituted with another choice. And so particularly those of us who have the privilege of living in the inner city where our energy and our furniture and our homes are powered and supported by those not living in the cities, we have that disconnection, which means we sit there going, well, make another choice, get a different job. But in small towns, that is often not the case. And of course, I think what this book shows as well is that there's incredible grief in saying goodbye to a job that has defined who you are for so long. And Damnation Spring is set 40 years ago, but there are so many parallels to industry today. And that epigraph made me think about those working in mining and fossil fuels whose livelihoods are 
completely intertwined with the destruction of the planet. And while I deeply believe we have to move and move very quickly on from those industries, one of the challenges to governments who at the moment are so stuck when it comes to climate policy, at least here in Australia, is to make sure that people working in communities like this community, but those that exist in Australia, feel safe and feel supported for what's going to come next for them. All right, today I would like to talk about Elizabeth Colbert's Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Now, if you read a lot of nonfiction or created nonfiction, you may know Elizabeth Colbert from Field Notes from a Catastrophe and The Sixth Extension. She has won a Pulitzer Prize for her reporting before, and she does work at The New Yorker. So, you know, her writing, her short essays are everywhere. Under a White Sky is a beautiful book. It is kind of painful to read, but I really do recommend it for Australian audiences, but for anybody. It is divided into three parts. And so I thought I kind of just wanted to take you through the three parts because they're all so different. And it was a reminder to me that the nature of the environment is so complex. It's the most complex system on the planet. I mean, it's so interconnected that as humans, we can't understand it. And I guess the point of the book is that all of the solutions that we have are actually terrible. Because every time we solve one problem, we actually create all of these unintended consequences that create further problems. And we don't understand the complexity of nature. And so we're just basically stuffing it up even when we try to do the right thing. So the thing that I was really struck by, aside from the actual content, is Colbert, yes, it's a a very sort of heavy topic and she does not pull any punches. But there's a lot of honesty and humour and she takes this incredible view of speaking with these interventions that she's describing. She talks to everybody and everyone kind of gets more or less equal airtime and she's not hitting you over the head with the intention of the book, which I really appreciated as someone who hasn't spent too much time in this kind of genre. But I think what I was left with was that the the reality that we as humans, we make assumptions about the world around us based on what we see in the present moment. And climate has a way of turning what we think we know completely on its head. And the sort of finality and the truth of what we're seeing doesn't become clear for a while. And I think that's what we're grappling with as individuals, as a community. It takes some time to see the effects of what we're doing. It really does. So the first third of the book is called Down the River. And I think we all understand that human activity over the last couple of centuries has hurt the rivers, has hurt the waterways, has hurt the natural environment, right? We get that. So she starts there and she starts in the river systems of the US, which sounds incredibly boring. And she actually opens the book with the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. And so you end up looking at the river system in the US and you think, why do I care about this? Why am I reading about this? That's, you know, just for cities in the US. This is not related to me. And then she starts taking you through the invasive species that humans have brought into the system and what we've done to the sanitation system and how we've actually stuffed the third largest river system in the world, the Mississippi Delta. And talking about the perversity of our solutions, one of the invasive species is the carp. And so carp, which originated in China, were brought to the US and they're really hurting the environment. And one man has decided that the solution to America's carp problem is to make carp a great source of protein and for people to eat it. And if people eat it, then there'll be less carp, right? Sounds great. 
also great economic opportunity. Because labor costs in America are so high and carp have really fiddly little bones in them, he actually catches the carp, puts them in a container, sends them to China where their labor costs are low, gets the fish deponed, freezes it, sends it back, and then tries to sell it in America. So his very solution of fixing the carp problem in America's river systems is contributing to carbon miles and is truly an awful solution. And she kind of goes through these things and you're just kind of sitting there thinking, nothing we do can help, nothing we do can help. And it's really quite overwhelming. But she also, by interviewing people who are really trying, you never lose hope reading her book you're like oh but there's a like you know these people some of the smartest people on the planet are literally spending their lives trying to do what we can so reading this made me think about the trolley problem I don't know if either of you ever did you know much philosophy or whatever at school but the trolley problem is famous and my husband son of a philosopher is walking through the room and so now I'm going to explain this badly and be shamed later but the trolley problem the idea is that both versions of the outcome are terrible, right? If you do nothing to intervene on a runaway trolley, it will kill many, many people. Or you can pull the lever and shunt the trolley onto another track where it will also kill people, right? And you have to choose who gets killed. And you can choose between one person who you know or many people who you don't know. There's no good answer. And by not intervening, by not doing anything, you send people to their death. But by doing something, you change the course of history and send people to their death. And I just kept thinking about that again and again through the first half of this book, that no matter what humans do, there will be all kinds of destruction that we potentially haven't considered yet. And I feel like when you look around the world right now and you think about the climate and you think about the environment, there are so many moments where you point to them and you say the solution is not necessarily a good solution. The solution, like with the carp, is potentially yet another disaster that we're causing. And while we know overall where we're trying to go, each of our individual attempts at solution, particularly when it comes to technology, have their own flaws. So thinking about the trolley problem, I want to tell you about the pupfish from Devil's Hole in Nevada. So the pupfish are these tiny little cute little fish. They're like, I don't know, an inch long, two inches long. And because they only exist in this kind of waterhole in the middle of the Nevada desert, they obviously have a very small geographic range. They don't leave their pool. Anyway, humans have stuffed up all the pools and they're only left in one and there's literally 200 of them and there's like 10 scientists who spend their whole careers living around the pool checking out the 200 or less pupfish and they're now known as a Stockholm species as in you know Stockholm syndrome for people Stockholm species which is an animal that is now entirely dependent for its existence on the animal that tried to kill it which is us and there are no good ways to bring back the pupfish. And the only thing that humans have thought about is to get some cement and recreate the exact version of the pool about a kilometre away. And so now there are two devil's holes, one real and one fake. That's uh, the trolley problem in action in the Nevada desert. Well, we've heard about the carp. We've heard about the pupfish. I think it's only right that we now hear about the cane toads. Biana. So again, with my far north Queensland growing up in the tropics hat on I was reading I was reading Colbert's book about human interventions to sort of stem the effect of, of climate change and environmental changes and 
she gets into invasive species very, very quickly, which made me think of the cane toad in far north Queensland. So I grew up oh, about two minutes from where the cane toad was introduced into Queensland in Gordon Vale in 1935. They were introduced because there was relative success in using cane toads to protect cane sugar crops from a beetle that could actually eat through at the root and completely destroy the crop. Cairns in the surrounding region, very reliant on the cane sugar industry. So in 1935, they attempted to bring hundreds of cane toads over from Hawaii and only one survived the trip. And now we're faced with a huge population of cane toads that are slowly making their way to Western Australia and they're massively toxic. And it's taken less than a hundred years for this to be deemed a pest and an invasive species and a risk to native species in Australia. But one cane toad survived the trip and in less than two months, they'd managed to breed that one cane toad into 200 cane toads, at which point they were released. So reading the genesis of the introduction of the cane toad into Queensland, from this perspective, you kind of just look at it and go, how did you not see that this would be a problem? And I think to sort of link it back to what we were discussing for Damnation Spring, there are no goodies and baddies here, not at least not in what Colbert's examining and in, in the sort of real world applications, the other examples of it. There aren't goodies and baddies here. There's just people trying to fix a problem. And with the benefit of hindsight, we can look at it and go, well, that was never going to work. But it does place humankind in this sort of almost, we are in opposition with the environment in the Anthropocene era, and we shouldn't be. And it makes me wonder, who should we actually be listening to? And where can we actually get some great advice? That is such a good question. Colbert doesn't give an answer to that, but she raises some questions that I think we should all think about. The title, Under a White Sky, actually comes from the final third of the book where she is talking about geoengineering. Uh, Geoengineering the sky, meaning we put some chemicals in the sky to block out the sun and prevent the planet heating. Terrifying, right? It's like matrix level terrifying. There are scientists who she interviews who think it's a terrible idea, think it's an absolutely terrible idea, but they are devoting their life to figuring out how we do it with minimal damage because they actually think a government will do it in the next 50 years. And if a government is going to do it without the consent of the rest of the planet, they think that we need to know how to do it. And this is kind of why I think that the power of books is so important. We all need to know that some rogue government might do that to us one day and good luck to the scientists who are studying it so it can be done in a less bad way. I want to say an enormous thank you to Bianca Coz for joining us for this episode, for bringing your lightness of touch and your deep interest in reading and also you know another little bit of positivity to contrast Astrid's doom and gloom it has been quite the doom and gloom episode thank you for joining us for this episode of anonymous was a woman about sustainability or not quite as Astrid pointed out in the beginning we will be back with you on Thursday when we are talking to the phenomenal Aja Baba about her new book consumed 
If you want to make sure that you don't miss that episode, then please make sure you subscribe to Anonymous Was a Woman wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us a lovely rating and a review? And even more importantly than that, tell a friend about this podcast because readers befriend readers as proven by Astrid and myself. And the other people who are going to listen to a podcast like this that is quite this nerdy are friends of yours. So please let them know about the podcast. We would like to thank Bad Producer Productions, Future Women, and of course, Hachette Publishing for making today's episode possible. This is the last full episode of the podcast. We will be back for one more interview episode, but this is it for season five. It has been a blast. We have loved being allowed to come into your ears, into your homes, into your shopping centres when you rarely go there, into your jogs and probably not much else because we don't go anywhere else in this country. We love being with you. We will be back with another season early in the new year, but I'm not sure Astrid and I can wait that long to drop the odd exciting episode, including to tell you what to read over your summer holidays and buy everyone for Christmas. That's it from us for now. Stay safe, wash your hands, get vaccinated. 